from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 15th. Today, how the global pandemic is reshaping borders and the sounds of coronavirus PSAs from around the world. A few weeks ago, on the island of Grenada in the Southern Caribbean, there was an announcement that was actually pretty relevant to my life. The implication of this disease in our population is that urgent and immediate action is required to identify and curb this spread. The Prime Minister of Grenada was worried about people coming into the country with coronavirus. So he decided to take drastic action. In our attempt to do so, we have closed our borders. And that meant, starting March 25th, no one would be coming in or out of the country. Hello. How are you? Locked down. <laughs> yeah, wait, so what's going on? neighborhood. I mean, you don't see a car, you don't see a, you don't hear people out anybody going to it's just quiet, serious business. So I think they're still allowing FedEx and stuff like that. Um, but there is no commercial flights. In fact, the last British Airways flight was, I think, yesterday, the day before. And I, I think it showed up here with nobody in it and was only taking people back. Mm-hmm. But we have two more weeks of lockdown. And then I don't know how soon they will reopen the airport. Those are my parents. They've been living in Grenada for the past few years. And for the first time in my life, I am banned from traveling to see them. For the moment, I'm banned from a lot of countries around the world. Of course, border closures and visa restrictions are a normal part of life for many people in the world who can't just travel wherever they want, whenever they want. But one of the things that's so strange about this moment is that now that's the case for almost everyone on the planet. And I've been thinking about what that could mean for the future, for after this pandemic, and what it could mean for how we think about borders in the long term. I was trying to think back, and I can't remember when would be a time, frankly, in like modern history, when you would see so many countries that are not letting people in or out. For sure. That's Sean Theroux, foreign affairs writer for The Post. Not in our lifetime or our parents' lifetime or our grandparents, depending on how old you are. Have we seen this kind of paralysis around the world? From 11.59pm tonight, we will close our border to any non-residents and citizens attempting to travel here. We will be denying entry to Canada, to Australia, to India, to enter or transit through Singapore. Con el Brasil, con el Peru y con el Ecuador, hemos decidido cerrar las fronteras del país. Todas las fronteras. Les frontières seront fermées. The barriers that have gone up impeding travel, the the links between countries that have been temporarily severed. And according to the study from the Pew Research Center, right now at least 93% of the world's population is living in places with COVID-related travel restrictions. Three billion people are in countries that have completely closed their borders to foreigners. 
Yeah, I mean, most countries in the world have imposed some form of shutdown. Our decision to close our borders was not one that was taken easily or lightly, but it was one that was taken to protect New Zealanders from the virus. To protect you, the people of Trinidad and Tobago. You, the Ghanaian people. To protect the health and well-being of all Americans. We must do everything within our power to contain the spread of the virus. And the fact that this scale of border closures has basically never happened before, it brings up a lot of questions about how people are being affected, how long this will go on for, and how it changes how we think about the world when we're all suddenly cut off. There are also questions about how and why these border closures were carried out. Well, in the initial stages of the outbreak, Uh, You saw a lot of governments around the world impose travel bans on people coming from China. Now, as the pandemic has progressed and China is on the other side of the wave, it's imposing its own own travel bans on people coming into the country from more blighted uh, places in the West. China has announced it will close its borders to foreign nationals this weekend. The new measures include restricting foreign airlines to a single route with no more than one weekly flight. Obviously, the most stark iteration of these bans has been seen in Europe uh, because of the nature of Europe's freedom of movement. You know, before the pandemic, you could have gotten in a car on the Atlantic coast of Portugal and driven all the way to, say, the Baltic Sea and not had to stop at any single checkpoint along the way. And that has been, of course, by this pandemic, radically shut down. Starting Monday morning, Germany will step up controls at the borders with France, Switzerland and Austria. The northern border with Austria, Switzerland and Slovenia largely shut. Uh, We've seen national borders spring up across the continent. Uh, Many border crossings have been just totally shut down between countries. The ones that are open now have checkpoints and you could potentially be deterred from entering another country by authorities there. And so that's been a huge uh, shift in how Europe conceives of itself. And then what about what's going on in the U.S.? In the United States, uh, of course, President Trump has made borders in general this great kind of floating signifier of his presidency. And so when the coronavirus emerged on the world stage, Trump acted in, in ways that he knows and that he's comfortable with. He slapped a set of restrictions on people coming to the country from China. We moved very early. That was one of the decisions we made uh, that really turned out to be a, a, a lifesaver in a sense. And then, surprisingly, a few weeks later, he also slapped travel bans on Europeans coming to the country. We will be suspending all travel from Europe to the United States for the next 30 days. President Trump has also used this moment to intensify his crackdowns on border crossings and enacted an executive order that that essentially allows U.S. authorities to immediately turn around asylum seekers uh, entering the United States from across the Mexican border. And now President Trump has been railing against the World Health Organization, criticizing them for discouraging countries from closing their borders early on in the outbreak. We call on all countries to implement decisions that are evidence-based and consistent. This is what the WHO was saying a couple months ago. And WHO doesn't recommend and actually opposes any restrictions for travel and trade or other measures. 
And this is what Trump said at a White House briefing on Tuesday, where he threatened to defund the WHO. The WHO's attack on travel restrictions put political correctness above life-saving measures. Travel bans work for the same reason that quarantines work. Pandemics depend on human-to-human transmission. Border control is fundamental to virus control. And while most world leaders are not saying what President Trump is saying right now, this is a strange moment in that you have leaders from all across the political spectrum, conservatives and liberals, agreeing that, at least for now, closing borders is a way to save lives. You know, I wish the world had listened to the World Health Organization uh, a little bit more on this, both around how to respond and how not to over-respond to the threat of global pandemics. And one of the things it said about how not to over-respond to the threat of global pandemics was to put in in travel bans, that that was a mistake, that it wouldn't help. That's Charles Kenny. He's a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. He recently wrote an article in Politico magazine about why border closures in a pandemic are bad policy. It's perhaps uh, the oldest uh, human behavioral response to disease. It became a kind of instrument used at the the state level, um, at least as early as the Black Death, the plague, when Florence, amongst other cities, uh, introduced passes and fined people who came in from plague-infected areas uh, from from other city-states. And then we kept on at it. So Austria created a long series of border checks and forts and quarantine houses along the border with the Ottoman Empire to try and keep out the plague. And then in the 19th century, we used quarantines against cholera and yellow fever. I'd say as we go forward over time, the quarantines get less and less effective and border controls become more and more irrelevant. Which is not to say they never work at all anymore. Indeed, I think at least the World Health Organization says, look, sometimes really early on in the course of an outbreak or a pandemic, putting in a brief period where you you, you keep people out from the infected area, it can delay transmission. But they come with big costs, especially if you leave them in place. And I'm not just talking economic costs, although those are big, and I'm not just talking social costs, although the fact that people can't go and you know visit their families elsewhere is a huge social cost. Um, they can also lead to dangerous behaviours on the part of people who are worried about being left out. Think about what happened in the U.S. after President Trump announced travel restrictions from Europe. You had tens of thousands of people suddenly crowding into airports trying to get back, a huge risk for transmitting the virus. Or you can look back to what happened in 2014. Based on recent and ongoing developments, I believe it is the right policy to ban air travel from countries that have been hit hardest by the Ebola outbreak. There was a lot of talk um, about the uh, Ebola crisis, that putting in place travel bans would delay the response in West Africa, and that would make the problem worse worldwide. So if you put in place a travel ban, doctors who might have been willing to go to to West Africa to fight the, uh, the, the Ebola virus, not surprisingly you know, might have second thoughts. So, well, you're not going to let us back in. Um, And so travel bans can have a fairly dramatic um, impact on the ability to respond to diseases where they break out. And that's really where you want to respond to diseases is where they first break out before they go global. And that requires not travel bans, but, you know, travel too. And so 
the effect can be that if you if you use a travel ban, you make the long term problem more difficult to respond to. And public health experts and epidemiologists have been trying to make that case to lawmakers. All of the evidence we have indicates that travel restrictions and quarantines directed at individual countries are unlikely to keep the virus out of our borders. This is what Johns Hopkins professor Jennifer Nuzzo said at a congressional hearing in February on coronavirus. Travel bans and quarantines will make us less safe if they divert attention and resources from higher priority disease mitigation approaches that we know are needed to respond to cases within the United States. But a lot of that reasoning and that research operates under the assumption that there is going to be a particular flow of the disease, that Western countries or, or quote-unquote developed countries would be better poised to help other countries, less developed countries, less industrialized countries, deal with a pandemic. But right now, that's not the case because the most developed countries are the ones who are struggling most with this. There, there are fascinating ways in which this uh, this pandemic is a great uh, leveler. Uh, you see Mexicans afraid of Americans coming across the border. And that's, of course, uh, at least in our uh, recent historical memory, uh, a great irony uh, of the moment. Uh, you see countries in other parts of the world that are slightly less affected by the pandemic, slapping travel bans on Europeans, on Americans... So if the pandemic is this great leveler, as Ashan said, I wanted to know what it feels like to be on the inside of that, to be in the position of putting restrictions on countries whose travelers you usually welcome. Hello. Is this Prime Minister Mitchell? Yes, speaking. That is Keith Mitchell, the Prime Minister of Grenada, the person who announced the border closure that ended up sealing my parents off inside the country. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, yes. Did you get pushback from, from people, especially because, you know, tourism is such a big part of Grenada's economy? Oh, yeah, of course, of course, of course. Well, they have some doubts, but I think overall people, remember, people want their life to be protected. Everyone thinks of life first and foremost. So while um, some people express the extent of the border closure, um, I think generally speaking, I, I think the decision to close the border has been a popular one. I saw your press conference on March 25th in which you mentioned that some foreign nationals had come into Grenada and had yes. been carrying coronavirus. Was that was that part of your thinking as you made this decision? Well, what we have seen a number of things. We are clearly watching what's taking place um, regionally and internationally. And of course, we are not living in a world by ourselves. We've seen the level of infection taking place in Europe. We have seen that taking place in North America. In addition, we had to look at the fact that we are not able, we do not have the resources to confront a mass of infections mm-hmm. um, or, or medical facilities. Uh, and the resources are not at the level of the United States and others. So we, we had to take precautions and do them very quickly. And this is what I found most interesting from Prime Minister Mitchell. I got the sense from him in our conversation and in his speeches that in some ways it feels like Grenada right now is on its own, especially because the U.S. and the U.K. are not really in a position to be giving help right now. 
If Grenada were to become a coronavirus hotspot, there's no guarantee that other countries would swoop in to provide aid. I was never prepared for this. Hmm. I don't think any leader. Technically, I mean, you can see them in, in, in New York, United States, you can see that. Um, it's clear that the president never understood the, the extent of the problem that you face. In Britain, for example, the fact that you have had so many top persons in Britain being infected, it's clear that the, they got the message very late. What a lot of analysts have pointed to during this pandemic is that, say, contrary to maybe the a decade ago when the U.S. under the Obama administration was taking a relatively proactive role in steering the global response to the financial crisis. Uh, We're not seeing any of that right now with this Trump administration. The U.S. is not uh, leading, you know, the G20 in any meaningful way. The G20 itself, which is this block of the world's biggest, most important economies, uh, is, is effectively rudderless. So all the sense of global community the sense of global coordination and leadership that for a very long time the United States has underpinned for good or bad, uh, none of that's really there right now. And it raises all sorts of new questions for other countries. New questions, like what will be the lasting outcome of these policy decisions? This world that we're seeing right now, where countries are turning inward and it feels like every nation for itself, is that going to be something that sticks with us long after the pandemic is over? We are all wondering that. Everybody uh, in my field, (laughs) uh, we are all talking about it among ourselves, about exactly what happens when the coronavirus is a memory. I got on the phone with Professor Alan Kraut of American University. He studies the history of infectious diseases, specifically when it comes to immigration. I mean, first of all, uh, we know that President Trump and his administration is not friendly to immigration generally and particularly from particular countries in the world. What we have, have no idea about is to what extent At a later time, they might use the example of the pandemic to reinforce those anti-immigration ideas. Maybe yes, maybe no. We don't know. To answer that question, it's helpful to look back to the one other pandemic that everyone is looking back to right now, the 1918 flu pandemic. In 1918, when the pandemic broke out, we were in the middle of World War I. We had sent troops. We were fighting in Europe. And because of the wartime situation, immigration to the United States had already dropped. Uh, And what happened was uh, we went back to business as usual and uh, immigration resumed. But there had already been, and there intensified in 1919 and 1920, pressure to curb immigration to the United States. There was a fear of radicals coming into the United States. There was a fear of people of inferior biologically inferior coming into the United States, by which they meant Southern Italians and Eastern European Jews. So in other words, concerns about the spread of the flu were being used as an excuse to carry out this political agenda that had been simmering for many years. This was the era of eugenics. And eugenic thinking, much more than the pandemic, uh, had a lot to do with shaping the views of uh, of nativists, of, of xenophobes, in the early part of the 20th century. 
In fact, in my own work, I call it medicalized prejudice. And the value of medicalized prejudice for the, for the bigot who's using it is that it seems like a rational justification for hatreds they already harbor, right? Uh, so you can say to someone, you know, the reason I hate the, these Jews is they bring disease with them. They're tubercular. They're going to harm the population. And on top of, of that, I mean, the, you know, disease from abroad is a phenomenon. And part of the reason for Ellis Island and for other immigration depots, Angel Island on the West Coast, uh, was to prevent disease from abroad coming to the United States. So they could say, look, you know, and they embellished it conveniently and did all the things necessary uh, to make people feel that these newcomers really shouldn't be admitted to the United States. So how is that going to play out in the era of coronavirus? One of the things we never know is what happens after uh, an epidemic or a pandemic in terms of social change, change in attitudes, social attitudes, social behavior, and so on. The world was already in kind of an immigration crisis before the coronavirus business started, right? And the question is, what will be the implications? What will policymakers want to do? I, I feel fairly confident, um, and this is a guess, this is sheerly speculation, but I'm fairly confident that migration will resume. Countries will open their borders to scholars and students and business people and uh, journalists and uh, ordinary people. I mean, it, there's going to be a going back to business as usual for the most part. But there will be instances where governments uh, who don't want certain people in their countries might use this, might weaponize it, if you will, as a way of keeping some people out. For example, Viktor Orban, uh, who's the Hungarian prime minister and a, a right winger for sure, uh, he says, our experience is that foreigners brought in the disease and that it is spreading among foreigners, end quote. Now, this is a, this is a dude who's definitely going to try and use this after it's over. And there will be people like this in the U.S. too. There are, there are myriad instances of far-right politicians, nationalist leaders, looking at the situation right now, looking at this menace of this invisible enemy, this, this, this invasive uh, enemy of the virus, and, and having it nicely fit alongside their own anti-immigration politics. Uh, from Hungary to Poland to even the politics of uh, this president in the United States. I made a decision to uh, close off to China. That was weeks early. And honestly, I took a lot of heat. Uh, Sleepy Joe Biden said uh, it's xenophobic. I don't know if he knows what that means, but that's okay. Uh, he said it's uh, racist, what I did. Uh, thousands and thousands of more people, probably tens of thousands, would be dead right now if I didn't make that decision. It's very easy to align the threat of a of a virus with the threat in their in their minds of uh, an immigrant uh, invasion or, or influx, and you do see a recurring pattern where communities that are as it is marginalized and perhaps vulnerable 
uh, become even more vulnerable and even and even more marginalized at a time when the broader public is consumed by fear of this invisible enemy, as as many politicians have now described the virus. And of course, there's the more immediate question of when will borders open back up and what will it look like when they do? Maybe there's a scenario where some countries opened up much faster than others, and that creates whole new tensions of who can, can travel where and who wants to be able to travel where. Maybe there's a scenario where, as we prepare for new waves of this virus, various countries enact unevenly restrictions again, and we see a whole new nationalist competition again over how open our countries and society should be, how ready we should be to help other countries, and, and how integrated our collective response needs to be at a time of global crisis. And the question of whether this leaves some sort of major political impact on both our understanding of our societies and how we should live our lives in the future, that's an open-ended one. And we won't really know what the answer is until we start emerging from this pandemic. But now is the moment where we're slowly starting to wrap our heads around the kind of huge, epochal, game-changing nature of what we're going through right now. Ishan Theroux writes about foreign affairs for The Post. He's the author of the newsletter, Today's Worldview. And now, one more thing. Across the globe, public service announcements like this one have started popping up to teach people how to slow the spread of coronavirus. I have a handle. I have a soap. Wash, 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 wash. Around the world, governments, artists are all creating public service announcements to try to teach people about safety during the coronavirus epic. A lot of them are truly fun and funny. My name is Mary Beth Sheridan. I'm a correspondent for The Washington Post in Mexico. Hola, soy Susana Distancia. Tengo un superpoder que me ayuda a frenar al... The PSA from Mexico features... Susana Distancia, who's a superhero, uh, and her name is a play on the Spanish for your safe distance. And what she does in these cartoons. She urges kids especially to keep a safe distance from other people, to wash their hands, and to otherwise stay safe during the coronavirus epidemic. The PSA from Vietnam was produced by the health authorities who worked with a prominent lyricist. And basically, they repurposed a very popular pop tune 
to be about coronavirus and staying safe. PSA from Bangkok shows workers from the Bangkok train service who are dancing and cleaning surfaces and washing their hands as they sing this very catchy tune that tries to encourage people to be more careful during the coronavirus epidemic and take the right steps to say stay safe. The PSA from Uganda features a very well-known opposition leader, Bobby Wine, who's also a musician. The bad news is that everyone is a potential victim. But the good news is that everyone is a potential solution. Sensitize the masses to sanitize. Keep a social distance and quarantine. What these PSAs have in common is... I think they show that around the world, there's just intense concern about coronavirus, a real sense that we just are in a terribly difficult time and it's just vital that people get the word about how to stay safe. Mary Beth Sheridan is a correspondent for The Post in Mexico. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Shout out to a listener named Joe in Massachusetts who sent us a message about how Post Reports has helped him adopt some healthier habits. After trying out dry January, he's been psyched about what I'm calling sober social distancing. If you want to check out that episode from December about sober curiosity, we will link to it in today's show notes and at postreports.com. And if there's something that you want to share with the team, email us at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.